Yeah, this is Phil. Hi, Bill. Uh, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. Uh, everybody's got a busy schedule or something, so I'm glad to. Well, I, I appreciate it. And uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you was a little bit about the uh, film that you were in that's coming out actually on disc and Blu-ray today, as well as um, a few of the other films that uh, you've been in recently. Uh, but first, uh, we're talking about The Hunting Grounds. Now, it's uh, a Sasquatch horror film, and I was wondering, uh, how did you, uh, what was it about the film that uh, appealed to you that made you want to uh, take on the role? Well, like most uh, people who end up working in the horror and thriller genres, I was a real misfit kid, you know, so misfit kids are believers, right? I mean, they, they want to believe in anything that transcends reality, so... I was a big believer as a kid in UFOs, uh, in Bigfoot, really in just about anything that was outside of the normal realm of my reality. And uh, I'd read a lot about Sasquatch, so when John Portnova sent the script over, I liked the fact that it was about Sasquatch. And I really liked the fact that John, who's sort of a geek, and I mean that very affectionately, he treated them uh, scientifically and he treated them anthropologically. He tried to treat the Sasquatches as if they were actual living creatures. Like, he gave a great deal of thought to what their family structure would be like, would eat, and that sort of thing. Uh, and I like that. And then the thing that I really love was my character in the movie is, oh, man, well, um, fans of Big, uh, Bigfoot, yes, Teddy Roosevelt, before he was president, a hunting trip, and he wrote a memoir about it. And in this memoir, he encounters a man named Bauman, who has seen a creature that today we would call the Sasquatch in the American Northwest. So the combination of all of those factors, the fact that it was about Sasquatch, that it was, they were treated as real creatures, uh, and that the character was named Bauman, made me really excited. <laughs> yeah, uh, Plus, I got to scream a lot. I never get to scream in my movies, Mark. I'm always killing people. So other people are screaming, and I never get to do it. It's a lot of fun to scream. And in this one, I got to scream my head off, so it was great. I was going to ask about that. Uh, you did do a lot of screaming, more so than I've seen before. Uh, did you did you have to do a lot of takes with the screaming? Was that a little bit uh, tough on the throat after a while? No, I love to scream, and I have a really, really good scream that I never get to use. I think I probably had the longest scream of any male that I've ever encountered. I've heard a lot of women scream on horror films, I had a great scream. Uh, so, yeah, that was no problem. The only other director that's ever let me scream this much is a, a art house horror hybrid movie, a little micro-budget called Coyote. And I got to scream a lot in that, too. So it's always great. Yeah, it, it was great. And uh, I really enjoyed your character uh, quite a bit. And he's the first one that actually gets to encounter uh, Sasquatch. Now, did you get a chance to see what they were going to look like before, uh, you know, before you shot your scenes, or did they keep it kind of a bit of a mystery of what the uh, the Bigfoots were going to look no, like? No, I, I um, it's, it's, I'm glad you asked that. I did not see them before the scene, so it was it was great, and they were very tall, and the creature suits were fantastic. I was glad that they did a lot of it with practical effects. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I always like when they're using practical effects in films, especially the indie films in that. And also, I think it helps the film kind of uh, last longer as far as time-wise. It doesn't date it as much, I think, uh, when you have a better... Well, yeah, and you know what you're fighting there is 
everybody now has this expectation, and I do it too. When I go to a YouTube video, I'm looking at the load bar to see how long it is. Hmm. Um, and once it starts, I'm like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, make something happen, make something happen. And so an indie film is up against that because you don't have a lot of money and you have to rely on character. Um, but I think that fans are the hard, they're two, you know, the two highest return on investment genres in this business are horror and family values movies. And both of those audiences love the movies so much that they'll let you spend a little time developing character, which isn't true in action and even romantic comedy. You got to get things going immediately. And and even in some in, in a lot of dramas, people want to kind of get to the meat of the story right away, rather than right. uh, just wait for you know. Okay, yeah, we're learning about them, but yeah, horror fans uh, they'll 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 come out and uh, and let you build a character a little bit. And uh, I what I really liked about your character was um, in this film too was the fact that uh, you're lugging around that pack and and he seemed to be. Very different from the the dad and son, their motivation uh, for why they were out there, and uh, you know how how yeah. you know how did you get into this character a little bit, and and what uh, what did you do to prepare for him because he was kind of a a rural uh, hiker guy, if you will. Yeah, um, and I and this was my own background. I grew up in rural South Carolina. Um, I wilderness hiked. I've hiked several times, seven miles up a mountain with a backpack. So I know what that feels like. I love being alone in the woods. I love being alone in the woods. I don't get to do it so much anymore, but I quite like it. So I related to all of that about him. The only thing I didn't relate to about him was that um, he, I think he was out in the woods. The backstory was that he was out in the woods because he was looking, <laughs> looking for gold. Mm -hmm. I think there's even a map that says gold here or something like that. <laughs> uh, you know, and he keeps fingering this little gold nugget. I don't have that love of money that he did but everything else i could uh, i could relate to yeah the location was uh really uh, beautiful uh the, where they chose to shoot this film was it out in a kind of a remote area or were you nearer to civilization in it it was remote we were in the pacific northwest the closest thing to us was a ski lodge it was, it was in the off season and so we used the ski lodge as our base camp and then from there we go out into the woods uh, those woods are remarkable, and you can easily get the feeling that there could be something watching you, not malevolently, but just something that you're not aware of because the woods are so thick, the floor is so thick, the forest floor is it's a padding. It's like walking on a carpet. You can't hear anything, so something could be very close to you, and you wouldn't know it. It's tremendous. Yeah, it. it I think it added to the atmosphere of the uh, uh, story, and the environment and the mystery, so you could believe that these uh, creatures actually did live out there. Now, uh, were you familiar with John Portnova's uh, other written work that he did, uh, like The Device and uh, The Invoking? Yeah, and I like the... Um, and the producer, Matt Maddish, I also was familiar with, both from The October People. I like The October People because they're committed to doing... Um, like another group I work with, Fatal Pictures out of Canada, they're a small group. They're both committed to doing pictures that try to come at horror from a character-driven point of view, rather than just gore. Uh, and I really admire that. Yeah, it, it's always good when you have a, uh, a group that looks more for towards uh, not just being gore or shocking, but actually wanting to do a story. Uh, well, the, the, the most frightening things to 
me come from one's mind and not from external force. Like you wake up in the middle of the night and you thought you heard the doorknob turn, but you're not sure and you're too scared to get up. And so you lay there for an hour wondering if you did or did not hear it turn. That's, that's real horror. And, um, and if you were to film it, there's nothing but the character reaction. So I think that's much more frightening than having something pop out. <laughs> it, it is uh, stuff that you build in your mind can be a lot more frightening than reality, uh, which you kind of explored in in uh, another film that I saw was uh, Deadly Re- Revisions, uh, where yeah. you you played a character who uh, had lost memory, and uh, that's that's also I think a frightening notion to to not remember thank, anything. Thank you for mentioning that. I thought it was totally wrong for the character and. I asked the director time and again, don't cast me in this because I don't think I'm right for the character because this character was uh, uh, very uh, cerebral, lived in his head all the time, and I usually play more, you know, kind of action-y guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he insisted that I do it, and so if it came out well, it's because of him. Oh. I just kept going to him and saying, hey, Gregory, you know, this, is this right? Is this right? Because he actually is a cerebral writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I really enjoyed that uh, role of yours quite a bit uh, in that, and it was uh, uh, pretty scary to think you could forget something. Uh, and also with that other roles, I mean, you, you it's very pro- prolific. I was looking over uh, your uh, IMDb, and I have I've seen about at least half a dozen of your pictures, and uh, every character it seems you play is a bit different from the last one. Uh, are you always looking for something new to do in your roles, or uh, rather than yeah, just some, settle? something new and something in the uh, in another corner of the same wheelhouse, Mark? What I, in fact, I stole my I, IMBD lets you put a trademark like what you're known for, mm-hmm. and I took mine from Lon Chaney Senior because it most perfectly described the people I get cast for macabre menacing characters with a hint of melancholy. And the melancholy is really important because it adds to humanity. So all of my guys are variations of those characters, just as Cheney's people were all variations of the, the villain who had sort of a sad side, too. I really, really love that combination. And, yeah, I'm always looking to explore different parts of it. I, the, for me, the epitome of that, the gold standard, was my character on Criminal Minds for CBS. Because that character was the perfect, what I call, wounded monster. You know, he didn't ask to be what he was. Um, he turned out murderous. <laughs> but he might have turned out another way had society treated him differently. I really liked it. I did see another uh, movie recently of yours where you did a, a darker character. Uh, than, and I actually didn't recognize you at first. And that was in The Chair. Um, I, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The, um, the, the prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the death row thing. The death the, with uh, Roddy Piper. Uh, how, how did you, you know, how do you get into a role like that? Uh, how do you prepare yourself for roles such as like that and uh, the other darker roles that you've taken? I I would flatter myself and be a liar if I said, oh, it's really hard to pull the darkness out. But like everybody else, I have my demons. Mm-hmm. and uh, they're always clawing at the door to come up. So for me personally, before I do this type of role, I just say to God, you know, please give me permission to step aside from you 
and let me step into the cage with these demons and I'll be back. <laughs> That's the way I think of it. Um, because people who are like the warden in the chair, I'm mm-hmm. sure he doesn't think of himself as an evil person. Nobody thinks, hey, I'm evil. Right. You know, we all got a rationale for doing what we're doing. So you just get into that person's head and see see the world from their point of view. And, and how was it working with uh, Roddy Piper? Uh, you know, him being a wrestler and all, was uh, were you a little hesitant to work uh, with Hot Rod or wondering how that was going to turn out? Yeah, the, um, yeah, because I'd never met him and I didn't know what he'd be like. You know, I only know his persona, but he was the ultimate sweet guy. Mm-hmm. So nice, so kind, so soft-spoken, and a damn good actor. Uh, we had one scene together where we had interaction, and, uh, and we did it a couple times. And I said, you know, I would really, really like to work with you, like, you know, on a series or in a more character piece where we had more together. He said, I would, too. <laughs> we had a nice chemistry, and he was a great actor. I was really surprised because, I, you know, I had no idea. I only knew him from the rest of the world. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it, he's surprised. I've heard that before, too, that uh, that surprises a number of people because, you know, he is a wrestler. So you're like, oh, he's going to be this type of, type of character. But uh, so with the roles that you take, is there something that you look for in particular besides it being a different character? Or is there something, you know, in a role that you might uh, not? take because of what they have the character doing? Um, what I look for is woundedness, uh, emotional or physical. Um, that's really, really, really important to me. If it's a combination of emotional and physical, that's the very best. I really like the idea that we're all trapped in our bodies. None of our bodies are perfect. You know, I myself grew up with really bad um, scarring on my face from a bicycle accident and from acne. So all my life, I've had people say, you know, what's wrong with your face? Uh, and, and I know what that feels like and how people will make a judgment about you because of your appearance. And I love to, to fold that into these malevolent characters because I want people to think, hmm, wow, I should really think before I make judgments about people because they might turn out to be like this. So that's what I like about characters. What really draws me, what repels me uh, from characters are those that are so one-dimensional that they can be described as evil. Mm-hmm. Like, we want you to play the evil guy in this movie. I've done it because, like everybody else, you know, I have to work. But my heart always kind of falls when I hear that description. He's the evil guy. Mm-hmm. Because that, and so you have to try to find your own nuance to put into it. Yeah, you seem to uh, have characters that have uh, more layers to it than just oh, he's just the killer, or he's just uh, just this. Like uh, the role you had in Assassins, uh, I I rather enjoyed as well. There was more depth in the character than I kind of uh, honestly expected for for a film and and for the uh, the role that you had in that uh, as well. Uh, so. Would you say, did you have a, a particular favorite role that you may have taken over the years? Well, on stage, um, certainly that would be the role of Jesus of Nazareth, which I did as a touring ministry for 14 years. Uh, and that was remarkable because people bring so many of their own ideas and expectations and love and anger and every emotion you could imagine to a portrayal of Jesus. They, they bring their own stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And all you're doing is saying the words he's reported to have said with no commentary and nothing else. Uh, and their reactions are wildly different. And so that was really interesting. On film, it was a movie called The Retrieval, mm-hmm. um, which uh, co-starred Ashton Sanders, who was one of the leads in Moonlight, which won the Academy Award. This was done a couple of years before Moonlight. It's a Civil War picture. Mm-hmm. And I play a slave bounty hunter, and uh, Ashton plays a young uh, black boy who I've encountered, and I have enlisted to help trick runaway slaves into thinking they're coming to freedom, but actually they're coming to me, and I'm selling them back into bondage, and I'm paying off the kid. And the kid meets um, an escaped slave who becomes a father figure to him, and he decides he's not going to do it anymore. And I come after the two of them. So he's a boy caught between two father figures, uh, me, the slave bounty hunter, and this man who he admires, the first father figure he's ever had. So it's, 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 it's a beautiful, beautiful film. And it's very quiet. Uh, and I really loved, I loved doing it. I loved my role in it. It, it sounds like a very interesting role. Uh, I'll have to uh, look that up. Do you know if that's available anywhere for anyone to watch? Sure. Yeah, it is. It's. Um, I think it's on Netflix. I know it's on Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's called The Retrieval. Um, it, it is remarkable in that I can count on one hand the number of negative reviews I've ever seen about it from <laughs> users or critics. Uh, Hollywood Reporter said, damn near flawless. I mean, it's just, it's one of those indie jewels. I'm, I'm very proud to have been a part of the retrieval. And, and that's, uh, that is an accomplishment, especially in uh, today's age with the internet and, and everybody being able to, uh, voice their opinion, if you will, for, for, uh, films. So, uh, on Netflix, I'll have to definitely check that out. So, uh, what would you say were some of your, uh, influences for you to get in, getting into acting? Uh, were there particular, uh, you've mentioned Lon Chaney. Uh, were you a big fan of his? Or are you, I should say? Yes, and I, I, w- I would never have known that Lon Chaney Sr. existed. He was so far before my time. Had it not been for the old Famous Monsters magazine. Mm-hmm. And um, I discovered Famous Monsters the same time that I discovered Ray Bradbury when I was 12 years old. And both of them together literally changed my life. Because I was the fat kid, the smart kid, the ugly kid, and the sissy kid, all in one kid. So um, I spent a lot of time alone, and I was pretty messed up. But I discovered Bradbury. He took me to the world of imagination. I discovered famous monsters. He taught me about all of these wonderful portrayals of monsters. You know, I'd never seen Frankenstein or any of those. Because there was no, we didn't even have, when I was growing up, we had no DVDs, let alone Internet. (laughs) So the only way you could see those is if really they might be on TV. So Forrest Ackerman, the editor of Famous Monsters, introduced my generation to people like Lon Chaney. Um, so Forey Ackerman was a huge, huge influence. Uh, people like Vincent Price, um, who was contemporary when I was growing up, was a huge influence, a sort of gentleman horror star. It's always what I aspired to be if I ever got into the genre, which luckily I did. Um, and, but the people who really, really pushed me into doing this were the kids who made fun of me. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I don't blame them because they're kids and kids can be cool. But if you scratch the surface of most actors or performers, you'll find people who were really made fun of as kids. And we do this as a as a reaction, a coping mechanism. And, and do you uh, draw from those experiences occasionally or from characters or people you may have Always. met from? Always, Mark. Yeah. 
every time. Childhood hurts are the deepest. And, you know, when you're an actor, all you got is yourself, your body, your memories, and your, your mind. You got nothing else. So you got to draw from what's inside you. And, um, I guess actors are more aware of all of this stuff than people who spend their life you know, not trying not to think about it. We have to try to think about it. Mm-hmm. Probably explains a lot of addictive behaviors for actors. <laughs> but yeah, the, the childhood wounds are always there, man. And you think they're not. And then just you start to go into them for a role and you can remember vividly. I remember the mortification of being humiliated and made fun of in front of other kids. And, and the guys who did it, they only did it because they sensed that they could because I was sensitive and they sensed they could make fun of me and it's an animal instinct for children and they found the weakest crippled one of the herd and they dug in mm-hmm. um, but man those those digs really stay with you but in my profession sometimes they're useful so yeah they they they, they help inspire you uh, a bit I I know uh, some of those uh, hurts myself so uh <laughs> They they do stick seem to stick with you the longest, but uh, if you can turn it into something positive, which you know you have with especially with many of the roles you've had, you know, very memorable roles. I guess that's one one positive thing is that uh, you you can use that as a tool to help uh, create a stronger performance. Uh, in well, I speak in schools a lot, and um, mm-hmm. I talk to the misfit kids, and my hope is that maybe something I may have done by the time I die, will help just one kid to feel not so alone and not to go down a dark path, and that'll be enough. And, and that's the thing uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit on, as well as not only do you have a very, uh, you're a very busy man. I think in one of the reviews I said you're probably one of the hardest working uh, individuals in indie uh, film, but you also do uh, talks at schools as well as uh, your stage plays. Uh, what are the talks in school? Are they motivational talks for students? Um, uh, well, I did theater for 14 years and before I started doing film and TV eight years ago. That's how I started visiting schools under the uh, Arts and Residence Program of the National Endowment for the Arts. Um, and in those days, they were motivational talks. You know, you can do it. You can do it. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, uh, I talk to them. I tell them some anecdotes about working on film and TV sets. I tell them what it's really like. And I get to tell them what I think is the most important lessons are A, what you see on TV and in entertainment culture is not real. It's all a lie. Every bit of it. It's all manufactured and it's not real. There's nothing to stand on there. It's less than sand. It's quicksand. And B, if you really, really love something and you're passionate about it, you should do it for a living mm-hmm. because you're not going to be happy if you don't, and you might just be successful at it. <laughs> Those are my my two uh, messages to kids. And uh, those are great messages, especially uh, do something that you love. I think a lot of people uh, don't think they can, or, or uh, you know, it, it, it's a challenge for them a little bit, and so they they sometimes don't think they can do it. So to, I think, especially for young people, to hear those words is. Uh, very important. Uh, I've got two boys of my own, so uh, I I can understand that they're both teenagers now. But uh, definitely uh, mold children. They they have their own ideas, and you don't want to necessarily uh, uh, crush 
any type of inspiration they might have or any type of ambition they might have to pursue a dream. Uh, and change, you, you can change, too. You know, that's mm-hmm. what it's okay. Just, if you don't like what you're doing when you get to be an adult, you can change. It's a job, not a marriage. <laughs> if, you, if you think you've gone down the wrong path, you can just get off that path. You can do that. I mean, we think we're locked into these, these, the, oh, my gosh, I put four years into learning accounting. If you really don't love accounting, just stop doing it. Ray Bradbury said, do what you love, love what you do. The things that you do should be things you love. The things you love should be things you do. And, and those are excellent words. Uh, and you mentioned you are a Ray Bradbury fan. Uh, you've also put, uh, portrayed him on stage, uh, have you not? I have not portrayed Bradbury himself, although I am now writing a piece in which um, I would do that. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. What I've done is, a, 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 oh, that's okay. I've done an ad, a adaptation of a Ray Bradbury short story called Pillar of Fire. Okay. And it's about the last the last corpse on Earth, and he wakes up and realizes there are no more dead people, because in this world, they don't have corpses anymore. Um, and uh, he wrote it when he was a young man, and I've turned it into a... Uh, solo stage reading, and I've toured with it around the colleges, and I've had a great time with it. I'm opening with it in New York in September. And uh, have you done any other uh, performances besides you? You mentioned uh, Jesus Nazareth, and you've oh, yes. uh, done that performance. What other characters have you done on stage? Mark Twain for almost 20 years, which I still occasionally do. Mm-hmm. When they ask me to do Mark Twain, I'll still drag him out and do him. I did. John F. Kennedy for nine years, uh, toured for the Kennedy Museum up there, as they say in the South, <laughs> in schools and colleges. I um, had a great time doing that. I uh, played Woody Allen in a show about early stand-up comedy. So um, I've, I've always loved history. I, I, was gonna, I, was I was going to ask if you were a, a history buff or a, a love of history, because it seems like you, you do take a, a number of historical roles when you have a chance, even if it's uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, fighting zombies, I believe it is. Oh, man, who would have thought that a 5'9 guy would play Lincoln? <laughs> um, I, I got a call from David Ladd at the Asylum Studios, and he said, um, would you like to play Abraham Lincoln? And Lincoln was, I said, look, David, I'm 5'9". <laughs> and he said, you can stand on a box, but um, we'd like you to do this. And I was just amazed and gratified because I've always been a huge fan of Lincoln. And Lincoln was not an attractive man. Mm-hmm. And I can relate to this. Um, Lincoln was once asked, uh, someone, someone accused him of being two-faced, and he said, "If I had another face, do you think I'd be wearing this one?" <laughs> <laughs> really love. So I love the fact that he was homely and a depressive, and probably our greatest president. Mm-hmm. That was wonderful. And then I also really loved playing General Sherman for the History Channel in Sherman's March, because Sherman said, um, "War is cruelty, and the crueler it is, the sooner it'll be over." Which in his day was a shocking change in how you viewed warfare. Today it's common. Mm-hmm. Um, but I grew up in the South with stories of Sherman. Literally, he was the devil. Yeah. Just, he was the, the devil. And to try to play him and get it to his head. Um, so yeah, I, I, I love history. I love historical roles. Uh, yeah, you seem to really get into them, and uh, it, that shows on screen. And it, it must be uh, fun when you're when you have a passion for history to also play those roles. So, 
that's great that you get those opportunities like that. Uh, now, with indie cinema, you've been in it, uh, you've been on stage for a long time, and now uh, doing a large body of work in indie cinema as well as on TV and that. Uh, would you say that over the years, uh, independent cinema has has changed from when you yes. first got into it? Yes, and it's only been eight years for me. So there are people who've been in this for you know, all their life. I did theater for the first half of my career, um, and I got into into cinema just at the time that the digital revolution was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, my agent told me, she said, it's a real pity that you weren't here 10 years ago because you would have been a star in Westerns because you have that kind of face. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I got into it just when cameras became very small mm-hmm. and anybody could make a movie, which in one way was great because there's so much more content. And another way was horrible because there's so much more content. <laughs> and it's really hard. You know, I mean, typical guy and his wife, they're looking through Netflix or whatever service they use. My God, there's so many movies. How could you choose? They never heard of any of these. Mm-hmm. So that's why people start their titles with an A, B, or a C. You get a lot of those. Because it's really hard to break through and let people know about your movie. On the other hand, you have an opportunity to be seen, whereas you wouldn't have before. So there's pluses and minuses, but there's a lot of content out there. Yeah, it, it does end up being a double-edged sword uh, with that that I've noticed that uh, some of the, the smaller, better films tend to get buried under a lot of films that were just um, quickly mass-produced to get, get out there and, and fill, uh, you know, provide content. And I think that's a, a shame sometimes because some of, those, some of those films, I think, deserve attention. But I think also, though, uh, people seem to focus a little bit more on production value than what's actually in the story. Uh, have you found that kind of to be true, that some movies possibly uh, were really good, but unfortunately they may not have gotten the attention because uh, they were done on a lower budget? Yeah, because um, we are a celebrity culture. We're not on the way to being a celebrity culture. I think we're right in the middle of being a fully celebritized culture. We have a celebrity president. Everything is based on celebrity now in this culture. And so when you talk to someone about a movie, uh, the first thing they want to know is who's in it. Mm-hmm. And everybody will say, who's in it? Well, you know, Joe Jones is, I never heard of him. Mm-hmm. That's the kiss of death. And someone says, never heard of him. As if it couldn't possibly be good if we haven't heard of it. And then, and, and they will judge because there's so much content, they will judge your movie, which costs $200,000, against Iron Man. Right. They're going to do it. If it's in the same genre, they're going to judge it. And they're going to say, ah, well, you know, I could I could tell that, you know, they were filming against a green screen, and they completely ignore the story. It, it, it's just going to happen, because everything's big now, everything's flashy. I, I almost think that we've lost the ability to to be small in a good way, you know what I mean? Oh, I, I know what you mean. I was having a discussion with uh, uh, some of my movie friends and talking about how uh, we've got so much content out there now, you don't quite have those iconic characters that we had e- even when I was uh, growing up because you didn't have as many theaters and as many movies out. Now there's so many that you don't quite have those uh, standout actors or if they are they're only standing out for five minutes 
uh, nowadays. Sure. And, and it's kind of a, a shame because uh, there's a, a lot of talent out there that I think just gets buried or doesn't look at because people are like, oh, well, it's it was made for $50,000. I don't want to look at it, you know. Uh, exactly, exactly right. There was a movie that I was in that was a uh, drama. And it got it won just about every award that you could win in any film, including internationally. Went out for distribution, and a big studio distribution company looked at it. And the comment that came back was, this is beautiful. This is a movie that America should see. It's such a shame that there's nobody in it. <laughs> oh, man. And that was the end of it. That was yeah. the end of it. it um, because there was no big name in it, it was never going to be seen. It didn't matter how good it was. So, yeah, people will make those judgments. If there's no big name in it, then it must not be great. If it didn't cost $20 million, it must not be great. Some of the, for me, some of the movies that have affected me most have not cost $100 million. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a, a lot of movies I, I've watched uh, as well, I, I find the, I some I, I enjoy the smaller uh films more because there seems to be more care taken a lot because you know they're working on a limited budget so the decisions they make uh have to have to count because you don't have a large money pool that well we can just shoot tomorrow uh right. you know and so i think there is more care in a lot of the indie cinema including uh hunting grounds i mean uh, you don't have a whole lot of um yeah, and don't have a large cast. Uh, it's out in the woods and that, but I thought it was a, a very uh, strong story, especially the story between the father and the son uh, in that movie. Uh, that that surprised me in a film that was about uh, killer sasquatches. Uh, was that element? Did that uh, surprise you a little bit as well in the script when you read it? Oh yeah, very much because I read the script and I was like, what? because I skim things too. Mm -hmm. And when you're when you're looking for a script, no actor will admit this, but I'll admit it now. We look for our character name first. <laughs> so I'm searching the PDF, and I'm like, okay, there I am, there I am, there I am. But what's all this about the kid and his father? And then I read it, and I thought, oh my god, it's character. This is great. <laughs> this is, it's real people. Yeah, I, I kind of like that too. And Jason Vale, who played the father. Um, was a friend of mine because he'd been in Abraham Lincoln versus Zombies with me, and I was so glad to see him. I thought he and Miles did a great, great job. Yeah, the the whole cast seemed to really get into it, and it's a film that uh, I think if if it's not handled properly, it could have gotten silly. But I never got that feeling from it, and, and actually, that scene where you have it in the cave, where you're you're describing uh, getting uh, trying to get away from the uh the bigfoot family that one actually that that story was a bit intense <laughs> you know and it, it, it could have been easily handled i think differently but you kept it really grounded in that with the lighting and, and everything uh was there a lot of care taken to try to make sure that it didn't get silly yes uh yeah we did several takes and what you saw was the most muted take it's it's been a really really hard lesson for me to learn being a stage guy. But Robert De Niro once said, uh, "The best thing to do on camera is nothing. The more nothing you do, the better it looks." Mm -hmm. And he's right. Like, don't put anything into it. Just keep it grounded, keep it real. And 
say the words, and if you believe it, it'll come across as believable. That's really different than saying, in this scene, I'm upset, or in this scene, you know, I'm anxious. Because that always comes across as too much. So in the take that you saw, I was thinking of De Niro's Do Nothing. <laughs> well, it, it was still very effective, uh, uh, e- even if you're getting uh, splattered with blood. And uh, speaking of blood, don't want to give too much away, but there is a makeup effect that you uh, are a part of later on in the film. Uh, did it take a long time to get those makeup effects uh, set up on yes, uh, for you? And, yes, and, and they always go wrong, Mark. <laughs> Anytime you have blood, something's going to go wrong, so you have to doubles and triples of costume. If you have women involved, it's even worse because you get blood in their hair, and then they got to go back to makeup and wash and reset their hair and redo <laughs> the makeup. Oh my God, <laughs> blood is either the funniest, funniest blood was involved. There's a movie called Werewolf Rising, mm-hmm. where we shot a scene where the the lead uh, um, lead of the movie, the the girl who was turned into a werewolf, she finds out that my character was like a, the one who turned her into a werewolf. So I'm morphing back from a wolf on top of her. And uh, I'm on on top of her, and we're shooting in Big Bear, California, and it's really, really cold. I mean, it's <laughs> absolutely freezing. And uh, I'm naked except for a stock, and uh, she's got on something minimal, and we're both covered in goop, this blood-covered goop. This was, the deal is like, you know, when we transform back, it's like we're coming out of the womb. Mm-hmm. It's covered in this true goop. Well, it's so cold that the goop is freezing on me, literally freezing. But there's a campfire behind us, so the bottom half of us is roasting. Like I can smell flesh starting to roast, while the front half is frozen. It was the weirdest feeling. So, like, we got to hurry up before the blood melts on the back and it freezes on the front. Uh. <laughs> oh, man, blood is always... And the worst... You can always tell an amateur director hasn't done this before because you do a shot that involves blood, and then they realize they missed an angle. Mm-hmm. And he's like, we'll pick it up later. I'm like, dude, do, do not walk away from this blood because you're never going to get this blood to look the same. Mm-hmm. No matter how you splatter it, you will never duplicate this blood. You need to do this now. But they won't. Mm-hmm. So they just end up not getting it. So as an actor, what what do you do to try to stay in character? Because I, I imagine, uh, you know, you've you've got all this uh, contraptions or whatnot on you, and then you you have to try to stay in character. Yes, you do. You so, cannot allow yourself to uh, to become a part of the machinery and mm-hmm. tech stuff going. Around. That's why I'm not on my cell phone. The whole time I'm shooting, I don't want to be involved in the outside world. you got to keep a little bit of yourself that's just your character that you can go back to. <laughs> Do you use a lot of uh, um, method acting uh, where you, you try to stay in character? Uh, I was reading a couple of accounts where uh, you yes. uh, you try to keep uh, a minimal amount. Uh, is that tough to do sometimes on a set? Yes, but I'm not a good enough actor to be able to snap in and out of it. Mm-hmm. I've worked with people who are good enough <laughs> actors to do it. I was in a, a front seat of a police cruiser with Dakota Fanning for a movie, and Jennifer Hudson beat up in handcuffs in the back. And both of them were able to just, you know, chat. Dakota Fanning texted right up to the second when they said action. Boom. You know, put the phone under her, did her scene, cried real tears. It was amazing. 
but I can't, I can't do it. So I have to stay in my character. And yeah, it is hard on set because people want to talk mm-hmm. and, um, you know, you just say, hello, good morning, whatever you have to say. And then so I try to find a corner that I can stay in mm-hmm. where uh, I can just, you know, be alone with the character. And I don't want to look at, I don't want to bring anything to read. I don't want to look at anything. I want to think about anything. I don't want any texting or Facebook. Just want to think about my words and the character, which sounds boring for hours on end. But you know, you got like maybe four hours of waiting, and then they call you for the forty-five seconds. You have to be ready because they're paying you. Mm-hmm. And when you get moving up in the business, they're paying you substantially to wait around for hours and then to be ready at the drop of a hat. That's your job. Yeah, I, I, I personally, uh, I have total respect for that because I'm not sure how I, how, how I would handle be able to uh, sit there and and just wait around, wait around, and then boom, you get a a minute, and then oh, we we've got to wait around for another another either reset the set or uh, we've got to move on. So we're done for the day, and you're just like, I was here four hours. <laughs> yeah, or on the bigger on the bigger um, TV shows in particular, it's very common to wait all day and not be used. And they're like, you know, you've been in your trailer for six hours. And then they're like, you know, that's a wrap. We're, we, we'll call you back tomorrow. We didn't get to it today. Uh, speaking, so, of, okay. uh, speaking of TV shows, uh, you were recently on an episode of Scream Queens, weren't you not? Yes, directed by Jamie Lee Curtis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I fanboyed out on her, and she let me get a picture with her. It was great. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think I saw the picture of that. Uh, how was it... Uh, Working with J.B. Lee, was it was it kind of tough to stay in character because uh, you were a fan of hers? No, it was great, mm-hmm. great, because she creates this atmosphere on set that's very loose and friendly, but you know who's in charge. Mm-hmm. Women directors do this much better than men. The men directors only really know how to be either just pushovers or hard asses. <laughs> but, you know, women can strike that balance, you know? Mm-hmm. And she said, Mama ain't happy. Nobody's happy. Yep. <laughs> she walked in. We had a scene set in a fabric shop, and uh, it was set up to be done in one office. And they had dressed the outs. The rest of the fabric shop used to be seen from the office door. She walked in, and she said, this is too good not to use. We're changing the whole thing. Walked through with the camera crew, and she turned it into a walk-and-talk scene to feature the whole store. They had to change a lot on mm-hmm. you know, a short notice to do that, but she knew it was right. And, uh, and she made it happen with grace, but with clarity that this is what she wanted and this is what would happen. And I made her laugh, too, and that was a fantastic moment for me. With somebody who's, you know, uh, you're a big fan of, when you can please them, mm-hmm. that's delightful. Because my character was very ridiculously creepy, and he loved his fabric, and he would sort of caress his fabric while he's <laughs> speaking creepily. And uh, she laughed out loud when we rehearsed it and uh, that was really nice very gratifying oh that, that's that's awesome <laughs> uh yeah so would you say uh, is it tougher doing tv versus a film uh or is it uh, just a different experience for you know doing one versus the other is it faster paced i've heard uh when you're doing a tv yeah, show it, um it is harder because it's faster paced and that's a good example of the screen queens the that uh, scene that I was in was written as a conventional horror scene, like to build up the creepiness. My character spoke very slowly and then had a nice payoff at the end. So the scene, as we rehearsed, it ran maybe I don't know, two minutes, mm-hmm. about, about two minutes. 
Well, we rehearsed it that way. She loved it. We were all set. And then just before we do the take, she comes to me and she says, um, she said, I was just on the phone with uh, production and we're afraid that if we don't pick up the pace on this scene, we might lose it in editing. Oh. So we got to double the pace, but keep the intensity. So that's the kind of thing you get on television, whereas in film you would have had time and multiple takes to work that out. Mm-hmm. So you just have to do it. Yeah, there's more pressure on television. Uh, well, uh, would you have any uh, advice for any up-and-coming uh, young indie actors or uh, just those who want to get in the business uh, in general, where they you know might want to start or, or how they should approach it? Yes, the general rules are um, only do it if you have to. Mm-hmm. If you feel you can't live without doing this, then do it. You're not going to make a lot of money, um, odds are, but you can be happy if you really love doing it. Um, the second rule is don't be a bitch, because <laughs> that can get you, shoot you down in the industry more quickly than anybody else. People want to work with people who are not bitches and easy to work with. If they hear that you've been a bitch about anything, you won't work. Because people say, oh, what's Joe like? I don't know, man. I heard he's kind of a bitch about the food. Boom, that's it. <laughs> Over. And then the, the the third thing is realize that when you give a performance, people have the right to either like it or hate it and to say so. And you can't say anything about it, but thank you for reviewing the film. <laughs> you don't get to say, although I've seen actors do it. Mm-hmm. One of them recently wrote, it was a film that I was in and another actor was in, and they didn't like this actor's performance. And the actor wrote, if you're going to trash my performance, at least spell my name right. <laughs> I thought, wow, don't do that, man, because that you just made an enemy. Mm-hmm. Instead, just say, thank you so much for reviewing the film and for all you do for independent film. Boom. So, yeah, don't, don't take it personal when people say, I really hate what you did mm-hmm. and when they really love what you did realize that the next role they might not sure it 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 varies because film is subjective which is the great thing and and also kind of the not so great thing <laughs> sometimes with it when it comes to criticism uh true but if people if kids particularly young people today if mm-hmm. they want to start acting they can start immediately you got an iphone make mm-hmm. a movie i'm serious make Make a movie on your iPhone. Start work right away. Start getting what it feels like to be in front of camera. Start watching it and thinking, do I believe this? If I don't believe it, why don't I believe it? It's an advantage that I certainly didn't have and no other generation has had before them. And they even have a way now to to just get it out to the masses through various uh, Vimeo and, and YouTube and such, so they can even distribute it themselves at least to get noticed possibly, which... A few people have over the years, actually. Um, Amazing. Yeah, it, it is pretty impressive with the technology that's out there now. And I, I, you've done acting and and producing. Are you getting the director's chair? Where you think? Have you been thought of giving into the director's chair more? Oh, I've thought of it like every actor because we think we can do anything. You know, mm-hmm. can you fly this? Can you fly the space shuttle? Ah, sure. How hard could it be? I'll just I'll YouTube it. You know? <laughs> But, but I don't kid myself. I've, I've watched directors work, and um, I don't know that I have that mm-hmm. particular skill set. Uh, for, I know that I can be a second AD 
because I've done that for some friends' projects. The second AD's job is to round up the actors and keep them where they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It's like herding cats. <laughs> it's like herding dyslexic cats <laughs> in search of catnip. Like, dude, I told you. I told you I was coming back in two minutes. Where I went to my car. We needed you for the shot. <laughs> so, but directing, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I don't want to keep you too much longer, Bill, but uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you, and, and uh, it's been a, been a privilege to, to talk to you. I've been a fan of yours for a while, I, I have to admit, and uh, it's been really great talking to you tonight about uh, your career and, and everything, and uh, I really appreciate your time tonight. Mark, I enjoyed it because it was a conversation with complete sentences. <laughs> Which I really get off on. Um, I, yeah, I mean, we exchanged some ideas, and you shared some, and I shared some. Um, it was great. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for the time. You bet. And uh, just, uh, do you have anything coming up that you want to plug besides, uh, well, we have hunting grounds out now, but anything coming up that people should keep an eye out for for you? I hate actors that plug their stuff. I hate oh, it. okay. But I, <laughs> I don't know, let me go plug my new film. Uh, I, I will tell people that if they are into clowns, mm-hmm. um, I have a movie out now, which is called Circus of the Dead, in which I play a, let me see if I can get all of his attributes right, a necrophiliac, uh, homicidal rapist who happens to have a day job as a circus clown. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, it's truly, truly a horrifying film. I, I certainly can't watch it again. I'm not watching it again. It, mm-hmm. it, it disturbed me, and I'm in it. So that's out there. If people are afraid of clowns and they want to be a little more afraid of clowns, they can check it out. And I'd invite people to interact with me, too. I'm on Twitter. Okay. There's Bill Overs Jr. And I'm on Facebook. And I love to interact with, uh, you know, with just regular people. I get a lot of regular people around the country that I never would have been able to talk to or know otherwise so say hello awesome well thank you very much bill and uh i guess we'll say good night thanks mark good night you bet